talk with the workers, no single worker work only eight hours per day and then enjoy with the decent living standard. They have to force themselves to work overtime. Uh, even you are not well enough, you are sick. And then if you just complain, if you just make the complaint, they may frame up you with any criminal cases. So this is happening. So wage for me, uh, as I said, is a, a key issue that put the people into the modern day slavery, forced labor. Uh, they, don't, they, don't, they don't lock you by the key, but they lock you by the system. That's Tola Maun, founder of the worker rights NGO Central in Cambodia. Today, we are talking about workers' pay, how to use data to make the reality of poverty wages transparent, and ways to campaign for a living wage. Uh, the supplier always say uh, we cannot pay higher minimum wage or living wage because the brand just pay them uh, low price. But we don't know how much the brand uh, paid um, uh, paid to the supplier. We because the business uh, agreement between the brand and the supplier is quite confidential, so it is not transparent enough. And then the brand does not disclose. Even some brand does uh, do not disclose their supply list. So we. We don't know, and the brand make an issues saying that okay, they do not have much leverage to pressure their supplier because they they have a small percentage of order either from the country or either from the individual factory. We need to see a transparent the, the, the business agreement between the brand and the supplier should be transparent. We know that some information they should uh, they should hide, but um, I think the export country should also consider about the ethical information act so the brand will not be uh, free in terms of providing a fake information to their to the consumers or to the government to its own government in terms of uh, the situations of the workers where they are producing the clothes I know that uh, in Norway, for example, they had uh, introduced uh, already the uh, the Ethical Information Act, which hold the business or private sector be accountable in providing uh, the accurate or uh, the real information to their consumers. Uh, transparency in terms of uh, throughout the supply chain. Welcome to the show. I'm Fabriana Firdaus. Making supply chains more transparent is a key campaign tool. The fashionchecker.org website is a step toward this. It matches brands with their supplier factories, so consumers and campaigners can see where clothes are made. But this doesn't show factory condition, including how much suppliers pay their workers. To try and change this, a recent fashion checker project began collecting worker wage slips in several countries. Anna Binias is from the Clean Clothes Campaign's international office. We can't just go out and campaign and ask brands to pay something because they will always say that they're already doing that or that it's not as bad as we're saying. So we need real data. We need real evidence. Um, to show that we are right and that workers have the right to earn more. Um, so 
it might seem like just a small part, but it's very important for our credibility also as a network that our campaigns are um, fact-based or data-based. Martua Rajasirgar is from the Gartex Trade Union in Indonesia. His union was part of the research. He says getting wage slips from workers can be difficult. For in in the in the field, the, it's some of the workers is afraid that their name will uh, leak to the to the company, and some workers also afraid that the their, the name of the company will be give to the brands. And uh, they scared that the brands said that oh this this company is not good, and then they stop the the, the uh, orders. It will be also impact to the workers. It's also difficult for us actually to expose the name of the workers and also expose the name of the company directly to to if we put it in public. We told the workers we would not publish the name of the factory, but it's then impossible to make the connection to the brand. And that's ultimately what you want to do because you want to hold the brand accountable for the poverty wage that they're paying. It might be that we do eventually publish the name of the factory um, if we know that 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 worker is no longer working in that factory, for example, because it's usually workers that we know. But yeah, it's very tricky. And the last thing we want to do as a campaign is, of course, to... um, yeah, put workers at risk. The research gathered data in several countries. In some countries, the wage slips were a little bit more reliable than in other countries. So you don't know if that was for a month or for four weeks, which is a little bit different, or for six weeks or whatever. So, But it was still good to collect the wage slips because it's just a piece of proof that you then have. Because often also what was stated on the um, on the wage slip was very low. So if you have that piece of evidence, a brand can never claim that what they're paying is much more than that because they're not. The project has made a start. It has also identified problems to solve. So the problem is how to update the data and also to, to gather more uh, uh, pay slip from the workers and not only for Indonesia, but for other country that also supply to the to the same brand, to compare the the, the difference between the wages between uh, in in the suppliers of the the same brand, we are thinking about that how to create a tool also that the workers can directly contribute to, to the survey to the to to the data gathering without the third persons like like like, like the surveyors. Uh, we are still still looking at the how it will be done, because uh, yeah, like we said in the beginnings, the confidentiality of the informations it's really need to be put in the first place. I think it's very important that workers feel some sort of ownership because it's their it's their livelihoods uh, and their data. So you know it should be easier for workers to, for example, just take a photo. Um, of their pay slip, upload that in a secure space um, where we are then able to to clean it, as my colleague would say, so that uh, the worker can never be identified based on the phone that they took the photo with. Um, and then we, 
I think there is no way but to have a middle person who would then need to analyze the data and and do something with it. Um, because the risk is just that if we if we go too fast and don't have any check in between, that then um, eventually the data is not worth anything anymore because we can't compare it then. Um, and what you want to do is compare, being able to compare data across countries. Um, yeah, preferably from the same brand even. The main challenge is clear. For real transparency on wages, we need more data. It's a big job and needs lots of collaboration. That's also the one of the important points, you see. <laughs> uh, the, because it's not only work for one trade union. All, all the trade unions actually have the uh, same objective and we have to collaborate with others. So uh, it's, it's, we also need to, what is it, open the mind to open up uh, the willingness of its organization to also contribute on getting the data. And I hope that uh, all the organizations uh, that uh, that also involved in the in the clean cloud networks will, uh, in the end, will will contribute to the data collections. So that's the kind of network engagement I think that we're looking for, um, and yeah, also for ways to make it easier for unions who might have wage data lying around in their offices, um, make it easier for them to also share it. So I think it's that those kinds of things that we need to think about in the next, um, in the next couple of years, because it's so, it's so important to have this data and to be able to use it for campaigns instead of for every campaign having to do a research before you can start campaigning. Um, so I think if we just find a way to, or maybe different ways, maybe we don't need one way, but multiple ways in which data can come um, into this database, then, yeah, I think that would be awesome. Data on wages is one important campaign tool, but better data capacity can also help many different campaigns. We are noticing... Um, in our office here in Amsterdam, but I think in the in the whole network, that data is becoming more and more important, and that over the years we have collected so many uh, important data points that we now um, are trying to digitalize and and combine them. Um, then at some point, I think it is a really powerful uh, thing to have at hand because it will make also our work so much faster. Um, because now often we rely on information coming from um, from the workers. But of course, if there is a crisis at a factory, an urgent appeal going on, the union leader often, you know, is busy with something else than talking to us. But if if we have historical data already somewhere where you just type in the name of the factory and then a list of brands comes out. And if you just have all that information at hand, I think that would be very relevant for us. But I think now it's still something that we're developing. That's Anna Bineas from the Clean Clothes Campaign's International Office. Across Asia, minimum wages are far below what workers need. 
for a dignified life. But in producing countries in Europe, the difference is even bigger. The average minimum wage is only 30% of a living wage. The European Union has a drive directive on minimum wages for the bloc. From Croatia, journalists Atsa Ferogolovic and Petra Ivsic have this report. Zovem se Štefica, radim u tekstilnoj industriji. Iza mene su dvije My name is Štefica and I work in garment industry. I worked in two factories that went out of business. Now I'm working in the third and we'll see what will happen next. I dalje šta bude biće. We met Štefica at the canteen in her factory. Her situation is typical here in Croatia and in many producing countries in Europe. Most workers earn a minimum wage that barely covers the cost of living. During last 30 years, my salary has gone up very little, almost nothing. At the moment, it's the same as the Croatian minimum wage. It's really hard to cover expenses with that. You can pay for utilities and maybe some food, but you can't afford anything except more and more work. I work six days a week, including Saturday, which is not paid. If I need a day off, I have to explain why I want a day off and where I'm going and so on. The European Union has targeted some level of wage protection for all workers in the bloc. In October last year, it published its proposed directive on adequate minimum wages. This would establish a legally binding framework on minimum wage levels across the EU. But it bases its calculation on a combination of existing legal minimum wages and median wage levels. That means it ignores what's needed for a living wage. Mario Ivekovic is a president of the trade union Novi Sindikat. I'm not satisfied with uh, criterium, criteria uh, at all in this directive because I think that uh, minimum wage has to be living wage. And uh, if there is not this connection, then we will say, okay, better is to have something than nothing, but we will not be satisfied because it's really not enough uh, for workers in European Union. The EU minimum could be so low it wouldn't really help workers like Stefica. The level in Croatia would be 451 euros per month. That's only 46 euros more than the current minimum wage. The estimated living wage for the country is around three times that, at almost 1,250 euros. The EU directive clearly lets workers down, but Croatia's governments lets them down even more. They are skeptical towards directive, which actually sets minimum wage on a very low level. However, the proposed EU directive might still provide tools to help change the situation. It also includes measures on freedom of association and collective agreements for workers. It says at least 70% of all workers should be part of these agreements. But the Croatian government insists workers should have the right to not to join a trade union. Unionists say changes to the labor law mean membership has dropped from 65% to 42% over 20 years. Nikola Ptic is from the regional industrial trade union. So in Croatia, for the last 30 years, the number of trade union members is in constant decline. Uh, and the same case is uh, in the textile industry. 
Uh, workers are unionized mainly in the companies that are owned by domestic entrepreneurs, uh, in textile, clothing, leather and footwear factories, uh, which are owned by uh, foreign companies. Uh, union organizing is, with only few exceptions, almost impossible. Uh, although they never say this publicly, uh, employers find a way to let workers know that trade union organizing is not an option for them. Employers spread the word within their factories that those who join any union are not wanted. Stefica says workers get the message, especially if they are on a short-term contracts. Pa u tekstilnoj industriji danas više manje jako malo ljudi vjeruje u sindikat. Very few trust the union. I mean, it's not that they don't trust the union, but they don't believe it's powerful enough to stand up to employers and the government. The government doesn't allow us to fight for our rights to stop being underpaid. Mario Iveković is not optimistic that the directive's measures on a collective bargaining will lead to big changes. But even with the limitations, he thinks that the directive might provide some opportunities. Actually, the reason why we support the idea uh, of establishing uh, minimum wage on European level is not this part which uh, speaks about mandated uh, collective bargaining and freedom of association because we already have it in our laws and uh, in international laws but it's not respected and it will not be respected again uh, but if we will establish minimum wage in uh, each country then we will have higher start in a negotiation for collective bargaining uh, today uh, in in all companies where we negotiate we start from li- really zero or, or or really low level of salaries and then we have fight for salaries and we don't have enough uh, energy and strength uh, to get other uh, other things uh, which are also really important for workers if we will have a better level of uh, minimum wage then our strength in collective bargaining uh, will be on higher level for sure and it is the reason why why we really think that we need minimum wage because otherwise we will lose a lot of energy on on just uh, just minimum wages which are existing today other campaigners say that if the eu sets a minimum wage it can open the discussion about the real living wage in other words, it can be a campaign tool in the longer term. Posao, oni znaju vrlo dobro kad ugovaraju posao, kolika je cijena, koliki je profit, dobiti takve stvari. If we had a collective agreement, then the situation would be completely different. The employer could be pressured into raising this lousy salary at least slightly. We should organize and put an end to this situation. It's time for change. Dići uzbunu, jer je 5 do 12. With Petra Ivšić, this is Aca Vragolović. The Asia floor wage has been a powerful tool in the campaigns for decent wages. It uses a simple but powerful method to define what a living wage should be across national border that covers 
the weight a family needs to live a dignified life. Now, Europe has its own floor wage using the same method. Matthew Abbott has this report. The Europe Production Focus Group first started looking at calculating a living wage for the region back in 2014. The group is an alliance of clean clothes campaign and other organisations focused on the garment production countries in East, Southeast and Central Europe. The reasons why a living wage is needed are familiar. Boana Tamindia is with Clean Clothes Campaign in Serbia. There is kind of competition between these countries who will attract more so-called foreign investments, uh, uh, which is uh, widely used by brands. And also it's common that our state is giving subsidies uh, to brands to come and uh, open the, the, the factories or uh, subcontract some factories uh, here. For example, it's 10,000 euros per one working place, which means we calculated it that brands have uh, employers, workers completely free with gross salary for almost three years. So that means like pure, pure profits that it is even cheaper than in Asia because it's for free. The Asia Floor Wage Alliance was deeply engaged with all stages of developing the Europe Floor Wage. They worked with the Europe Production Focus Group to apply the methods to calculate this. But differences between the two regions are significant. Artemisa Lealia is Clean Clothes Campaign Urgent Appeal Coordinator in Germany and was heavily involved in the Europe floor wage work. The prices of goods, the prices of utilities and the prices of houses are much higher in this region than in uh, Asian production countries. And this comes because many of them are also members of the European Union, which means that they have to somehow standardize these prices. And in many cases, standardization of these prices leads to an increase of the prices, especially in the housing market and uh, in the utilities. The workforce often varies greatly between countries as well. In Ukraine, for example, workers are often older, while in other countries such as Albania, they are largely younger. But these differences didn't affect the relevance of the Asian floor wage methodology. Its strengths were clear. This included using the cost of food as an indicator to calculate overall living costs. As in Asia, this was set at 3,000 calories per person per day. Rather than rely on official statistics, field research confirmed what this would really cost workers. Other features of the Asia floor wage methodology were also key. It's a highly feminized industry and women are like sometimes in their household the only uh, breadwinner. They also ha are in charge of the reproductive work, taking care of the elders, of a partner, of children. So we wanted to factor in also the reproductive work of women. And the Asian Flow Wage Alliance methodology with this like a family approach towards the living wage allows for that. This means the living wage is calculated for the needs of a family of two adults and two children. Some costs varied by location. 
In the end, the Europe floor wage has two slightly different levels covering two different groups of countries in the region. This is measured by purchasing power parity, meaning how much goods cost in a given country in their US dollar equivalent. It comes to $2,640 US dollars for one group of countries covered by the Europe floor wage and $1,980 US dollars for another group. You can find a link to more detail on this and other elements on the episode website. The Europe floor wage report was adopted in March 2020, but defining how much is needed for a living wage is only the start. For most of the countries, uh, actually, the living wage as a concept is completely unknown. Now, when we are introducing Europe floor wage, we are also introducing a concept of a living wage. So that is the, the, the higher difficulties that we are facing now, actually. You are presenting the concept of living wage as such, and then you are also presenting the concrete numbers for the region and for specific countries. Artemisa says it's not just about explaining the Europe floor wage. Some campaigners also struggle to accept the figure as feasible. This huge gap between minimum wages and living wages makes the Europe floor wage seen as something unattainable, a real utopic aim, according to many stakeholders. So our biggest challenge at the beginning is to conquer the narrative in order to gain legitimacy with this tool. By conquering the narrative, I mean by um, reaching out to different stakeholders, first and foremost, trade unions. They are the most uh, skeptical. They, it's not that they are not sympathetic to the methodology and to the fact that they would have a figure, but they are not sure whether they would not look themselves ridiculous by, by placing this as a demand. This work already started in Serbia late last year. Here's Boana once more. We organized two uh, roundtables for uh, trade unions, CSOs, uh, representatives and uh, uh, independent media representatives. And also we called some people from political parties and movements progressively oriented. Uh, and we present them. And the reactions were very uh, surprisingly positive. Boana says they began promoting the idea of a living wage even before the floor wage was finalized. Since 2017, actually, we speak about that and we try to uh, have like kind of low profile campaign mentioning the word living wage and our translation of it. And the first reactions from trade unions were that is too, too high. And from workers also, that is too high. But we now have a progress where actually in one factory is producing for Western brand, there is a demand to increase uh, a, a wage that workers are, uh, are receiving to the level of the average wage uh, in Serbia, which is two times higher. And this is the most uh, political and uh, bravest demand uh, ever. And they use our benchmark. They said, okay, living wage is like this. We need two thirds of it. Making this change happen isn't only about promoting the idea of a living wage as a human right. And it's not only about defining what this wage should be. 
there are other challenges as well. In the Eastern European and Southeastern European production countries, the idea of a collectivity has lost its notion because it was so used, word out during the communist time that once you mention this idea, yeah, but together you can do something, like the collective is strong, they associate it with the way they were collectivized beforehand immediately. It's a bitter sensation. But also in the ground, um, many of the workforce now is uh, in some countries is pretty young. So they have no, um, no information of what a trade union is. No concept, no notion about it. They don't even know the labor code or what a payslip look, looks like. So there is, I think, a need to do double work in order to just inform the workforce. And our idea is to form a platform that will campaign. I'm speaking now about Serbia for a living wage. Uh, it's just the very beginning. The reactions are positive. We think that uh, there is a lot of great experts actually that can uh, that we can benefit from and that they are willing to help, and that we are also offering, uh, as I said to as we said to uh, all the trade unions, we are offering you with this living wage, we are offering you a tool, so you can do with this whatever you want. But you can first of all use it in negotiation for a minimum wage or for uh, collective bargaining or for what, whatever you want. So we think that it would be successful, but we'll see. Boana Tamintia ending that report. What's the next step in campaigns for living wage? Ashim Roy is from the Asia Floor Wage Alliance International Secretariat. The first step of universal living, the idea of a living wage, I think is already, uh, already happening. What is important is that as this idea gets to Hello there and apologies for the interruption. This is Matthew, producer of the show. We really like what Ashim says, but as you've all noticed, our interviews come under all sorts of conditions with different recorders and different internet connections. We tried doing this interview several different ways, but the connection problem was hard to get around. Even though our sound engineer, Steve, does a great job cleaning these interviews up, this was a tough one, and we want to make sure everyone gets the details. So I'm going to start Ashim up again here and summarize his points at the same time, but we'll keep his original version in the transcript that you can see on the webpage. Sorry for this, Ashim. Here we go. What is important is that as this idea gets to Africa, the first point's about universalizing the living wage idea. They started work in Asia on this and didn't promote its significance beyond that context. But the Europe floor wage now shows that the methodology is strong enough to take it everywhere. So we have a clear idea of a living wage for a global economy, no matter what the country. The COVID crisis has shown that there's hardly any surplus of savings in the workers. 
He says COVID's shown how vital this is because many workers have no savings and in fact were already in debt. So on poverty wages, they can't save for hard times and immediately drop below the poverty line. This is a family and a social and a health crisis that can lead to starvation even. A living wage, therefore, is needed for social insurance and social security. Reflecting this, Asia Floor Wage Alliance, Clean Clothes Campaign and others have all been pushing for brands to contribute to wage assurance to mitigate the COVID crisis. Ashim also makes the point that about 30% of so-called fast fashion production is wasted, with studies showing that this rests on the cheapening of labour and the cheapening of materials. If global production chains adjust to a living wage, it means they could reduce waste and increase environmental sustainability. Now we have to build up a fair amount of a narrative globally. Then he says we have to build up a global narrative showing the strength of the living wage concept. The garment industry is the one that moves from country to country the most in global supply chains. So if a global living wage demand comes from garment workers around the world, that's an historic contribution. His last point is the big one, and I'll repeat verbatim. There's no way of addressing globalization without coming to the idea that there is a legitimate, feasible, and universal idea of a living wage. Thanks, Ashim, and don't forget to check out his full contribution on the episode webpage. There is a legitimate, feasible, and universal idea of a living wage. of our show. This is the last show for a while. We will be back in April with four more episodes. We will talk about China, digital campaigns, and home-based workers. But what else do you think we should talk about? We really want to get your suggestions and ideas and your feedback. So remember, please email us at podcast at cleanclothes.org that address is on the podcast webpage too. Matthew Abbott produced this episode with Anna Decker and the Clean Clothes podcast team. Liz Parker, Tane De Hui, and Johnson Chin Yin Yern. Sound engineering support is by Steve Adam. I'm Fabriana Firdaus. See you next time.